0: All right, that's the foghorn, and y'all know what that means. It's time for the Cavas Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval
1: and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, what goes into developing the naval mind? That's the topic of a new book by Benjamin J. Armstrong and John Fryman that looks into the multifaceted process of producing a naval professional. We'll dive into the fascinating subject with co-author B.J. Armstrong. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world.
0: On January 3rd, the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln deployed from San Diego with carrier Air Wing 9. Included in the air wing is the second squadron to deploy with the F-35C Joint Strike Fighter, Marine Fighter Attack Squadron 314, which is also the first Marine squadron to deploy with the carrier variant of the JSF. Navy Strike Fighter Squadron 147 is currently deployed aboard the carrier Carl Vinson flying the F-35C. That ship is now on the back end of her Western Pacific deployment. Rounding out the Lincoln strike group are the cruiser Mobile Bay and destroyers Fitzgerald, Gridley, Samson, and Spruance. It's the first deployment for the Fitzgerald since returning to the fleet from repairs after the June 2017 collision with a merchant ship off Japan. That killed seven sailors.
1: As 2021 closed out, there was an interesting development in the Philippine Sea, south of Japan, where the Japanese carrier Izumo maneuvered into a Chinese Navy task force centered on the aircraft carrier Liaoning. As seen in a photograph released by China, the Izumo, trailed closely by a Chinese frigate, came within just over a mile of Liaoning while the Chinese ship conducted air operations. It was possibly the most brazen situation seen yet, where a Chinese or Japanese aircraft carrier maneuvered so close to other Navy ships. The US Coast Guard on December 29th awarded a $553 million contract to VT Halter Marine to build the second polar security cutter at Halter's shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Halter already is working on the first Polar Security Cutter, a large heavy icebreaker based on a German design, under contract award in 2019. A third ship is also planned. And in personnel news, the
0: Navy has begun out-processing sailors who refused to be vaccinated against COVID-19. The first group of 20 sailors were all newly enlisted personnel who were within 180 days of having entered the service. On the leadership front in separate, unrelated incidences over the last three weeks, the Navy has relieved the commander of the Naval Reserve Center in Toledo, Ohio, the commanding officer and executive officer of the littoral combat ship USS Montgomery's Blue Crew, and the commanding officer of the destroyer Paul Ignatius, all for lack of confidence in their abilities to command. And that's our first look at Naval News for 2022.
1: All right, uh, let's move on to our discussion part of the podcast. We are honored to be joined by Commander Benjamin B.J. Armstrong, a friend of the pod and personal friend uh, of both Chris and I. Uh, B.J. is a former search and rescue helicopter pilot uh, and a current associate professor of war studies and naval history at the United States Naval Academy. He is the author or editor of four books and several dozen articles. His name should be uh, no stranger or he should be no stranger to our listeners. B.J., it is great to have you on the pod. Thank you very much. Happy New Year um and we've been we've been wanting to to get you here since we started. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me aboard. It is it is really a pleasure to be
2: here um and to talk about the new book developing the naval mind which my co-author John Fryman and I wrote. Uh, John sends his apologies that he can't be with us here today,
1: uh, but I'm looking forward to the conversation. So let's start with um you know, what, what caused you to write the, the book? I mean, I know that, um, you, you know, learning and, um, you know, continuing to get better at your profession is uh, at our profession is something that, um, you, you know, you've been interested in as long as I've known you. But what caused you and, and John to sit down and kind of put this book together? I,
2: part of that comes from from my background as a permanent military professor uh, which is what I am and what, what John is captain fryman is also you know i spent 16 17 years as a search and rescue in and mh60 sierra h46 helicopter pilot um, but I got selected into this special program, the Permanent Military Professor Program, and I finished my PhD in War Studies at King's College London, and I'm going to spend the rest of my career here at the Naval Academy. And so I kind of wear two hats. I'm I'm both an experienced fleet officer who had a, a successful uh, fleet career, flying helos, but I'm also a, a scholar, and I'm also an academic and a professor. And the Navy has invested a bunch of money in me and and folks like me and John to, to help us learn what we as professors call pedagogy, right? The methods of learning, how to be good teachers, how to be good professors. Um, and so that in part leads it leads to this book. A couple of years ago, I was asked to join as a, a small part of the effort of what became known as the Education for Sea Power study group. And in my work on that study group um, and, and the final report that came out from the study, we talked a lot about the Navy's educational system, right? The at what it called the Naval University, but maybe we should call the Naval Educational Enterprise. All the different war colleges, schools, academy, the new community college, for example, got formed out of that program. But we talked a lot about classrooms. We talked about how professors end up there, how teachers end up there, how students end up there, how it links with a career. But what we didn't talk about is learning elsewhere. And there's a lot of learning that goes on in the fleet and there can be education in the fleet as opposed to training, right? There's a lot of training in the fleet. There's a lot of great training in the fleet, but how about education? How about not, you know, if if training teaches us how to do the things we already know how to do, education teaches us to think about the things that we don't yet know how to do. And that belongs in the fleet too, or at least that's my thought and my experience. And so while working on that education for sea power study, John and I would occasionally sit down back here at the Naval Academy when I had a research day away from the Pentagon. We'd have lunch and we'd talk about what is it that we as permanent military professors can bring to back to the fleet. And that is the knowledge of pedagogy and learning and teaching and how we learn and how we engage with big ideas and how we wrestle with them. And that was really the core idea behind this book. And so in essence, what the book is, is it's a how-to manual for leaders in the fleet to start doing that kind of intellectual work in their fleet units, whether it's in your wardroom, your ready room, your work center, your chief's mess. How do you come together and wrestle with big naval, lowercase n, so Navy and Marine Corps, naval ideas to make us... Smarter, more adaptable, and ready to face the challenges of the 21st century.
0: Can you give us some specific examples of the things you're
2: you're advocating here? So the the book is really designed, like I said, it's a how-to manual. It's almost it's it's almost worth thinking about it as a a seminar in a box. Um, when when I was talking with other peers and friends of mine, classmates from my time at the Naval Academy as a student who have gone on to their own great careers and been skippers of squadrons um, and that kind of thing. Many of them expressed an interest in being able to sit down in the wardroom or the ready room with their JOs, with their department heads, and have a discussion of something Alfred Thayer Mahan wrote, for example, right? Or maybe Stansfield Turner's Missions of the Navy. But they don't know how. They've never been taught how to be teachers, right? They've never been given the uh, gouge on how to effectively lead a discussion group. And rather than stumble through it and kind of maybe have it not go well, they have very busy lives as skipper or XO or department head. And so they just don't do it, even though they kind of want to, they kind of feel like they ought to. And so what John and I have created here is that instruction manual. The, The beginning of the book is a series of chapters all about what the history of personal study is in the Navy and Marine Corps, what the history of group learning is outside of classrooms in the Navy and Marine Corps, the the philosophies of it, basically. And then we talk about how to read, how to read, right? In the Navy, we read for quick hits of information, right? We grab our NATOPS manual. We grab our, our publications and, It's a different kind of reading. Or we're on our phone and we're scrolling and we're scanning really quickly for information. Deep reading of of interesting things about naval strategy and leadership and professionalism. These things take time and attention. So how do you read? You know, we've got a chapter on that. How do you lead a discussion group? What are the effective methods of getting everybody involved to talk about things? Uh, How do you participate in a discussion group? Uh, Each of those kind of has a chapter at the beginning of the book. And then in the the second part of the book, uh, basically it's the readings. It's 12 sets of readings for you as the fleet leader to sit down with your people and and to read them. And we've created discussion questions in advance to get you started. Um, And so some examples from those the back half chapters are readings like William Sims's essay on military conservatism, um, or Stansfield Turner on the missions of the Navy, Samuel Huntington on the, the transoceanic Navy, his famous essay from Proceedings. Uh, and so the essays themselves, the chapters that are former articles from kind of the goods and greats, as well as many unknown authors. They span strategy, operations, tactics, leadership, professionalism, all kinds of topics in the 12 to 15 readings that we have there for people to engage with.
1: So what's the, um, what's the feedback from the fleet been, um, whether it's from, you know, former shipmates or leadership? I mean, what, what are you hearing about how the, the book is helping uh, the problem that you set out to, uh, you, you know, make easier? So there's two sets of feedback on that. Uh, admittedly,
2: it's very early on, right? The, the book just came out, but the release date technically was the 15th of November, but with, uh, with the paper shortage and the transportation issues here in the US, warehousing problems, it took a while for the book to actually reach people. It really didn't get to people's, in people's hands or onto their shelves until the beginning of December. So we're still kind of early on. We haven't heard a lot from folks. What we have heard uh, is, is pretty positive. People think this belongs alongside the watch officer's guide or alongside other key texts on professionalism. Um, we, we've had a handful of folks actually to suggest that this belongs on the CNO's reading list, which is really a great compliment. I don't ac- actually ever expect that to happen. Um, there's a whole process for that. Uh, it's a bit of a mystery to me. Um, but just have someone say it is a is a great compliment. Um, but there's some feedback we got prior to doing that. Um, the summer that the pandemic hit, I had a, an old buddy of mine, one of my, actually one of my roommates from the academy, his little brother, commander Timmy Dracinos, reach out to me. Uh, commander Dracinos had finished the war college and was XO at HSC 22 down in Norfolk. And he wanted to bring this kind of conversation to his ready room. And we did it online because the pandemic had just hit. It was that that summer of 2020. But we got together online on a series of Fridays, basically a happy hour discussion group, and they opened it up in the squadron to members of the ready room, as well as the chief's mess. And so we had a handful of pilots and a handful of chiefs who came. And we did a sequence of readings about Alfred Thayer Mahan and tested out some of the ideas that would eventually go into this book that John and I had been working on the the manuscript of the book and so we tested it and and we had a great time like i said it was about three happy hours that we did uh and even though it was digital even though it was remote we had fantastic conversations we had some really intellectual hard thinking ideas about leadership about strategy because we kind of mixed and matched the different topics that we talked about and and it was fantastic because it was both the ready room and the chief's mess and We think about today's enlisted force. And this book, really, it's not just about officers, though admittedly some of the language in it, because John and I come from the officer corps, it is focused on officers. But we know that if you think about many members of the chief's mess, some of them have master's degrees. Some of them are more educated than the JOs are. Uh, And as the Navy stands up its community college program, many of our sailors are going to become interested in these topics. The, the certificate that they've just started in Naval Studies at the community college, I mean, the subjects in this book really fit with a lot of the things they're going to be studying. And so this, this ape- can appeal widely. Uh, and so we tested that out during that kind of digital seminar session. And had I thought we had a great time. The feedback I got via email from the participants was really positive. And from Commander Dracinos and Commander Matt Wright, who was the skipper of the squadron at the time, uh, everyone really kind of seemed to think it went well. And so I think that bodes well for those who want to try it out. Yeah, so those uh, are great.
1: Oh, I just need to say, Chris, uh, the great names. Matt Wright uh, is a high school classmate of mine mm-hmm. and uh, Dracinos was a, a plebe uh, in my company at the Naval Academy. So no surprise that that those two guys uh, you, you know, would be on the leading edge of this uh, with, with you.
0: So I, I've got a question here. So you're the, a lot of the uh, suggested readings you you cited span a number of periods, but it's all big thinking. Um, you know, why why things are the way they are um, sort of stuff. Um, did you look around at other services and think that maybe they're doing something that the Navy is not? I mean, obviously the, the, the closest thing to the Navy in the Department of the Navy is the Marine Corps who sort of drills that lore of the Corps stuff into everybody from the very beginning. You, don't, you never escape that. But did you see things from the Army or the Air Force or the Marines that you thought were lacking in the Navy or different?
2: That, that's a good question. I think many of the things that you see in the other services when it comes to, let's use education as the label, the differences that I see, and I've talked to a lot of folks in, in the Army and the Air Force, the differences I see are more about the the school side of things, the actual getting orders and going to school, spending time in a classroom, as opposed to the self-study cultural, uh, the cultural embrace of group learning and self-study in a unit. I don't know that those services have more of that than the Navy does. Although I do think that if you look at just kind of what we used to call the blogosphere, what is social media today, you do see a lot of really interesting engagement in ideas from the other services. And while there are some Naval participants in that world, I think there are probably fewer Naval participants in that world. You think about the writing at, say, the Strategy Bridge or War on the Rocks, you tend to see a lot more at War on the Rocks, you tend to see a lot more retired Naval folks than actual active duty folks. I don't know what that means, but that might mean something. Um, But John and I did. We talked to other people, but we did want to focus on the naval mind because, frankly, that's what we are. We're naval officers and and we're naval professors. And that's where our area of expertise lies.
0: So in in terms of culture, um, and and I'm, I'm trying to differentiate here between professional learning and big time architecture big picture architecture and also on the deck plates how do you conduct yourself what's the history of people doing whatever it is you're doing today um, all of that the long
2: line that that you all are part of um, yeah, I, the, If you look through, if, if anyone gets a chance to, to grab the book and look through the list of titles of the essays that we've included in the readings, there, there's big stuff, right? Like I said, Sims on military conservatism. Although frankly, that's a discussion both of deck plate culture, as well as strategic conservatism. So both are actually in that Sims essay. And we talked about Huntington. I mentioned Stansfield Turner, but also included in our list of readings are Stu Landersman's famous essay, The Damn Exec, which is all about deck plate leadership, right? Or Jim Stockdale's essay on moral leadership from Proceedings, which is really about the the heart, and I use that word intentionally the heart of being a professional, being a naval professional. Mumford's famous, and I love the title of Mumford's essay, Get Off My Back, Sir, all about micromanagement and over supervision at the deck plate level. An essay that was written in the 1970s, but I can tell you right now is going to resonate with a lot of naval professionals in the 21st century.
0: I'm not sure you have to be a naval professional to to have that resonate with you. That's that's pretty universal.
2: Yeah. And so there's think. there's a good mix here, I think, in in what's offered of both those big ideas like like J.C. Wiley's essay, Why a Sailor Thinks Like a Sailor, which is big strategic ideas, as well as some of those more deck plate or leadership and professional oriented ideas. There's also a share of Marine Corps stuff in here, too, because I said Naval with a lower case N. So, you know, uh, uh, Gary Anderson's essay, The Business of the Marine Corps, from the early 1980s, which really raises key questions about Marine Corps identity that that the Corps is still wrestling with under Commandant Berger here in the 21st century. Um, Or or General Krulak's strategic corporal uh, essay, which is one of two that are included here that were not originally published in proceedings. Most of the essays in here came from the historic archive of proceedings because it is an amazing wealth for naval professionals.
1: So before we let you go, um, you know, we're hoping to have um, Steve Deal come on uh, in a few weeks and talk about the larger um, Education for Sea Power effort um, as um, our current secretary, we're told, is planning to kind of take up bits and pieces of that and and move it forward. But what I really like about the book is that you kind of leave those big efforts to people. I mean, you certainly played a role in that, but you, you don't this is this allows the deck plate leader, it allows the 05, it allows the 06 to kind of carry on a more organic effort. I- explain before we let you go how you see that organic effort attached to some of these higher efforts in terms of where we hope to get the Navy uh, when it comes to education and when it comes to you know a, a better appreciation for learning.
2: So as a historian, I am uh, at risk always of over analogy. But let's start with a little historical story, right? So the last time a major, major study of the educational efforts of the US Navy was conducted was about a century ago after World War I, when Dudley Knox, Ernie King, and Bill Pye sat down and wrote what's known as the Knox King Pie Report. And, and the KPK report is, is often kind of held up as, as this great example, and it is a great example, of how to think about Naval professionalism, how to think about how education fits throughout a career. These guys made key insights on the nature of specialization versus general Naval knowledge, the idea of of tactical and technical ability versus strategic and professional thinking. It's It's a wonderful document. It's an amazing report that they completed and gave to the Navy. And we often look back and say, that's a great example but we don't talk about what happened after the report was done. After the report was done, the Bureau of Navigation, which is what personnel used to be called, put it in a file cabinet in the basement and locked it up. It disappeared. The only reason it survived is because then Captain Ernie King happened to be the secretary of USNI, and someone leaked it to Proceedings, and it got published in Proceedings. The results of that report were never Navy policy because it wasn't adopted by the Navy. It was hidden in that file cabinet. It never saw the light of day. But what happened? Well, the ideas in that report, after it got published in Proceedings, started to infect that organic officer corps. And it started to change the way the officer corps talked about their profession. And it started to change the ideas that they used in shaping their own careers. And the result was much of what was suggested in the report came to fruition across the interwar years leading up to World War II. Attendance at the Naval War College went up. They created what was called the general course, which was for senior uh, lieutenants to do a year of grad school before going off to their department head tours. A Navy-run grad school, it was actually right here at Annapolis up on, on Hospital Point that they ran it, the idea of how education fit within a career, how long was a career in those days? It was 40 years. The definition of a career wasn't 20 years back then. That's a post-World War II invention. So these, these things infected how the officer corps thought about itself. Maybe infected is the wrong word to use these days, um, but it, was, it, was, it bubbled up from below. And I think that's why an approach to looking at naval education that embraces the deck plate, that embraces the fleet and our each of our intrinsic desire to be a more professional officer, to be a more professional sailor, to be a more professional chief, that's what we need to latch on to. Because as I read the history of naval education reform, the institution doesn't tend to like naval education reform. It doesn't tend to like spending money on it, and it doesn't tend to like sending people to school. So sometimes we need to do these things on our own.
1: Well, I very much appreciate, and as I know Chris does, uh, you spending, you know, even if it's just a a few minutes with us, uh, we hope that you'll come back um, we hope that people will reach out and, uh, and purchase the book um, because, you know, this organic effort paired, as I said, with, uh, you, you know, institutional efforts, I think is what's going to make our Navy uh, stronger. I think it's what's going to make us more prepared. I think it's what's going to make us competitive in, in the future. So very much appreciate not only your time here, but you and your colleague putting together this series of essays uh, to make our, uh, our Navy stronger. So thanks, BJ. And again, look forward to having you back. Thank so you so our, much. Thank you so much for having me,
2: guys. You know, as always, these opinions are presented in my personal and academic capacity, not reflecting the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy, although I often wish they would.
0: So our, our guest today has been Benjamin F. Armstrong, the co-author of the new book, Developing the Naval Mind. Um, he wrote that with John Freeman. So thank you again, BJ. Thanks, guys. All right, time for a little squawk box. This week, Mr. Cervello has some thoughts on leadership, learning, culture, and the Navy.
1: Well, Chris, um, we noted in the news items that the commanding officer of the USS Paul Ignatius was relieved of command. Um, That officer was not just a brother in arms, he was my actual brother. So I have something of a personal bias here. In our last segment, BJ Armstrong thoughtfully discussed the need for the Navy to be a learning organization. Over the next several months, we will continue this theme as we discuss initiatives and opportunities for the service to improve education and training. These types of efforts are helpful and will undoubtedly make the Navy a stronger and more serious service. All that said, my 20-plus years in uniform taught me that the ideal learning opportunity comes in how you treat your people outside of the classroom. Learning organizations allow people to make mistakes in training environments. They encourage people to share their hiccups across the waterfront. They treat people with dignity and respect, even if they goon things up. They don't hide behind phrases like due process or other legal mumbo jumbo. And finally, they don't escort them out of their workspace without allowing them to pack their belongings or say goodbye to their team when the tough decision to relieve them has been made. Operating at sea is cruel and unforgiving. But should the Navy's leadership be the same? I'm not so sure. If our Navy is going to get better, stay better and perform better than the competition. CEOs shouldn't be more afraid of making mistakes than they are of encountering the enemy.
0: Okay. and before we go, we need to note that on January 11th, the annual Surface Navy Association's National Symposium begins, live and in person, from Crystal City, Virginia, just outside Washington, DC. Both Chris and I will be there, socially distanced, of course, And each day during the show, we'll present a a podcast with an interview featuring significant industry participants. Among those we'll hear from are folks from Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Austell USA, and Fincantieri Marinette Marine, all discussing the ships, weapons, and systems they produce for the Navy. It's good stuff. Be sure and tune in.
1: Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Kavis Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm
0: Chris Cavas. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. bye <laughs> bye